0: Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. Today we have guest host and Yenching scholar Sebastian Ryle leading the conversation. Our guest, Kella Easterling, she's an architect. She teaches at the Yale School of Architecture and her newest book is Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space. Um, I found especially interesting the chapter on free sounds, which is also published as a, as a paper itself. By the name Zone, the spatial software of Extra Statecraft. Uh, thanks a lot for having you here. Maybe for the start, you could explain to our listeners what are free zones.
1: Well, there have always been on pirate enclaves and free ports, the idea is ancient. But the phenomenon that I'm describing in the book is one that perhaps begins in the early 20th century in the United States with um, something called a foreign trade zone, which was really nothing more than um, a warehousing compound for storing custom-free trade. But it has evolved in the 20th century, evolved is one word for it, mutated uh, uh, in the 20th century um, to be something that... um, uh, was promoted by uh, UNIDO as a way to jumpstart the economy of developing countries, um, and then uh, began to kind of hybridize with many other forms. UNIDO thought that the form would dissolve back into the economy of the host country as it kind of would used to be kind of a temporary uh, technique for. Uh, But the opposite happened. Everything began to locate within the zone. Um, And uh, as the form started to become more and more contagious around the world, the zone has really become, has swallowed the city so that it's become the um, germ of a kind of urban epidemic that's creating all the Dubais and Singapores and Hong Kongs all around the world. There are now you know, thousands in 130 countries, some measured in hectares, some measured in square kilometers. And the next poorest country now thinks they need that zone um, as a way to, um, um, as a way to attract foreign direct investment. What's central to the zone? Is that it offers? It's an authority independent from the from the laws and economy of the host country. So it offers to foreign direct investment uh, no often no taxes, uh, deregulation of labor, environmental law, cheap labor, streamlined customs, that kind of thing. The incentives to which um, uh, corporate global corporations have become addicted.
0: And if you look at the statistics, I find it very interesting that it's a real hockey stick if you look at the number of zones in the world. And so, as you said, the first ones of the new ones came like in the 60s, but then it has really taken off. And you now most countries in the world actually have some kind of free zones. There are more countries who have free zones than countries who don't have them. And what you see is the, the reason that it suddenly really exploded and it's like everywhere. Like I, for example, I'm I'm based in China now, and we look at the Chinese economy. And Many people see the Chinese special economic zones as jumpstarting the Chinese economy, and many people see those pictures of Shenzhen how it used to be a small fishing village, and now it's this metropolis with 10, 15 million inhabitants, and it seems very attractive for developing countries in the world that they think they can copy this success of Shenzhen. Do you think as well that's like an attraction, why so many countries now started adopting those? Or there are are different reasons behind the sudden proliferation of zones everywhere in the developing world mainly?
1: Well, it it, you know, while the uh, World Bank and uh, some other groups in the 80s were starting to question the zone, um, whether it was a a kind of suboptimal situation, whether it would be better simply to invest in the infrastructure and economy of the host country, as, a, as opposed to an enclave with special rules. But by that time, uh, by the late <clears throat> 70s, China was using the zone as a market experiment. Um, and, and also, you know, using uh, it pr- once it began to kind of proliferate the idea of zone as its vehicle, for for um, entering into entering into the global market, it kind of became a self fulfilling prophecy. There was, was no no turning around. Um, I think Dubai, um, uh, the Emirates, uh, the also um, um, kind of used that form um, as a as a means of. Uh, entering into the global economy as well. Um, and each country uses it in a different way. But the ways that um, it was used in both China and Dubai were as cities. Um, you know, so uh, I think the same could be, you could look also in Ind- at India and um, India and Singapore using um, uh, the kind of office park, or uh, the kind of office park that's merged with the zone. Uh, Dubai did that for the first time, but then the sort of software park merged with the zone. Um, so there's, there's, you know, several different places in the world with <clears throat> large population centers that are, I mean, or, or which are, which are, you know, generating this idea, um, and generating different forms of the zone and there are you know there are there are many many different forms of the zone the one thing that they you know have in common is that they are a kind of incentivized urbanism
0: as the world is further and further urbanizing and we have still big parts of the population that are living on the countryside and many people project that maybe we will see the biggest push of urbanization within the next decades do you think special economic zones are a good way of jumpstarting new cities to give potential home to these people looking to find uh, homes? Or is it better to expand existing cities? So I know there are, like a lot of people are very interested in the idea of creating new cities and then combine also with new regulatory frameworks. So there's the idea Paul Roma, who's now the chief economist at the World Bank, he spearheaded this idea of charter cities, which is a very radical approach of starting a new city, basically with completely different laws from the country. And that, that would be an idea to not only provide a new city for people to go, but also jumpstart the economy. But of course it also has connotations of new colonialism, as it's very inspired by the examples of Hong Kong and Singapore, which were obviously British colonial outposts but uh, on the other hand it has also many supporters who think that would be a way of on a clean slate to design a well-functioning city with well-institutions that can provide something in a dysfunctional country that doesn't exist before and inspire change. What are your views on that? Do you think more it's uh, intrinsically a colonial project trying to place institutions somewhere instead of organically developing them? Or is it a good chance of kind of starting from a clean slate and developing something uh, completely new?
1: Well, the kind of clean clean slate, one stop is the usual slogans that are attached to the zone. And, and I think they are um, <clears throat> the kind of charter city is really uh, just just another version of that kind of incentivized urbanism, in my view. Um, <clears throat> so, no, I'm not really so interested in it. Um, I mean, it just seems that um, the best thing to do is to try to find a way to um, invest in the existing economy, invest in existing cities, um, and how to do that, um, how to manage foreign investment in cities, um, how to make a better bargain with that foreign investment, how to attract it, and so on, seems to me to be an incredibly interesting um, design problem. So the clean slate master plan is a pretty boring design problem, or it's not even a design problem, it's just a it's just a template, uh, for another shiny city. It's just a, a blunt instrument. And I'm not convinced that it's done anyone any good. It's more and more evidence that there are clear winners and, and clear losers in that formula. So, um, you know, also just, uh, you know, also just, uh, it's uh, something that is is drained of of any vitality
0: i find it also interesting that often these zones they're championed under a very free market ideology but in the end if you do urbanism as economic policy creating a new city a new zone from on a clean slate from scratch it's a very central planning approach you don't have this organic development as you have in existing cities where there's a spontaneous coordination and something organically evolves you actually have to centrally plan everything so it's a very interesting contrast to the very free market ideology that's behind them so it's obviously this, this tension. Um, then I wanted to ask you as uh, our podcast called um, China Econ talk. There's been a lot of the Chinese zones have been very important within China itself, but there's also been a process of exporting this concept, as at least in China people have been very convinced that it was a successful model for China and now they've spread to to Africa, to Ethiopia, for example, where the government is working very closely, to uh, Egypt as well, to Zambia and a few other places. And, do you think they are part of government geopolitical trying from China trying to gain a stronghold in these positions and like a neo-colonial project or should we rather see it as a form of development aid where China is trying to use its expertise and try to benevolently give that to other countries further away?
1: Well, on the heels of the, of the last question to the, um, what one what I'm looking for is a protection of labor or a, a way that labor has the protections of the rule of law, which is why I'm also suggesting that investment um, return to existing cities. Uh, so the, the dangers that a company um the kind of shiny new enclave outside of the existing city uh, you know are are dangerous to labor but they're also dangerous to draining away uh, needed infrastructure for for in in the host country in 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 existing cities um, so I don't I don't see anything different about that in the way that China is um uh, Taking on big infrastructure projects in um, in Africa, or making new uh, shiny enclaves, um, the, I don't I don't see any safeguards for labor in that uh, formula. Um, do I think that somehow China is selflessly offering its expertise to um, Africa? No, I don't. Um, I'm not sure I would, maybe you would call it a kind of neocolonialism, maybe you would not, maybe you would just call it what it uh, maybe, maybe you would look at it for what for what it is now just look at the evidence there. Um, It's not to say that, that that there's not something, that there couldn't be something productive about uh, African Chinese partnership. That some of the design work that I've been doing is trying to think about how <clears throat> how African cities and countries make a better bargain with their assets. It's clear that China's made a calculation that there's some benefit for them in the partnership what what how best to benefit the host country um what's the calculation on the other side that that concerns me
0: i see that um free zones special economic zones they're quite established and it's e- rather easy to sell them to countries under this label i feel at least and i remember the case of the special economic zone in sri lanka where china gave a loan to the Previous Sri Lankan government, and they were not able to service the loan, and now China op- took over the whole port area with the attached free zone. It's I think on a ninety-nine year concession, and but it's called a free zone, so it's a lot more nice sounding to politicians. That's if you would call it a treaty port, which would be like a very sensitive term or some foreign concessions. which also would be very sensitive for political views. So I feel it's also it can include a lot of different things like many free zones, special economic zones, are basically just industrial parks some other ones are much more like whole cities, some even have their own legal system like the in, in Dubai, the Dubai International Financial City, so it can include a lot of things but it seems to be that you can quite easily package what you want under this label and then uh, sell it to other governments, at least uh, I feel like this
1: I mean, nothing nothing is more sort of hilarious than the idea that these are um, outposts of the free market. (laughs) These are outposts of a manipulated market. Um, So free, free has never been the right word here. Um, And uh, so even the kinds of uh, design work that, that, I'm often proposing is about how to create interdependency, um, that there's more empowerment in the interdependency of um, uh, interdependencies between the assets and needs of a city like Nairobi or um, uh, then, uh than to to try to package the idea as one related to freedom or uh, uh, convenience or uh, some kind of uh, un, unencumbered lubricated situation. It is unencumbered and lubricated for some but but uh, not so much for for others it,
0: but then if you see that the, there's so many projects of those zones and as you said it's like trying to build shiny enclaves but then it's surprising that most of these projects actually go nowhere they don't generate profits for the economy they don't even generate those shiny skylines they're basically just stuck the build of maybe a few industrial sheds, but then nothing happens what do you think are the other reasons why some of them, like in Dubai, become very big, very successful, or like Shenzhen, and then we have so many of them, maybe 80, 90 percent, who basically don't go anywhere, non-regarding if they are uh, considered to be good or bad, but they just don't go anywhere.
1: Well, I I mean, I I think it is probably, as your previous question suggested, that there there are economies that are overextending their Abilities taking on loans that 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 they can't yet handle um, to be able to provide um, infrastructure for uh, that's attractive to foreign investment. Whereas um, you know, I mean, Dubai, Dubai, when they um, were going to provide access to their assets, they made a much better bargain. So you know, they they said if you're going to Um, have access to our oil and gas resources or you're going to have a defense contract with us you you have to that they essentially curated investment in other uh industries that they needed that if you wanted access to their oil and glass you had to invest in an offset industry fish farming desalination um, aluminum production something like that so it's the very things that dubai did to kind of ratchet uh forward um you know using using their assets uh to to gain momentum which which is what i'm suggesting that the developing countries do um and you know i mean I'm, dubai also has an enormous cushion of capital that it can withstand it can, you know it, it it could withstand something like the 2008 financial crisis but but only because you know it had a very wealthy neighbor in Abu Dhabi to kind of bail it out. Um, uh, but but it's clear even when I've been at uh, conferences for um, uh, free zone developers. Once once I tried saying, um, well, you know, I don't know if you know this. I, I was lying, um, but I said I don't know if you know this. But all the mo- all the smartest. Uh, Zone Free zone entrepreneurs now are not building ex-urban enclaves. Instead, they're finding it much safer, a uh, lot more synergy, a lot more security, et cetera, to build in existing cities, to invest in existing cities. And um, it was hilarious, the response. The response from uh, a few bankers was that, that um, yeah, they encountered so much failure with, in, the, in these attempts to build cities out of whole cloth and that in fact it would be better to build an existing cities i was bluffing um but i just i just wanted to see what what they would say and the response was interesting
0: i feel it's always very difficult to build on new cities i have the most ambitious programs at least that i know of seem to be in saudi arabia where there's the king of dollar economic city which is already a bit older and the last guess i heard it's oh Maybe they, they plan to invest up to 100 billion US dollars to create a completely new city on the coast of the Red Sea where there was only desert, which would be the biggest investment project in human history probably, the biggest si- single one. And the last guess is I heard there were only around 5,000 people living there, which seems to be very inefficient given the huge amount of investment. But then rather surprisingly, the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia recently, just a few weeks ago, announced the creation of Neom, which made a lot of headlines, which is up to half a billion, yes, half a a trillion US dollars of investment. Very big, there's nothing at all there now. He signed up the former CEO of of Siemens, one of the biggest managers in the the world of industry and business, to develop it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's just megalomania or... So on the other hand, some people say if you want to reform a country as Saudi Arabia, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to adopt existing cities, to negotiate with people about trying out new policies, like giving women the rights to thrive, which now finally came through, but which was already also spearheaded in the King Abdullah economic city. Isn't it sometimes also good trying to just build something new which is optional which sidesteps vested interest and you can just try it out and if people like it then it can spread back so like it's a way to experiment without stepping on on anyone's shoes
1: Yeah, you know, the, the neon project is uh is remarkable um well i, I suppose it, it underlines this the habit um which is now it's now become kind of um a, more than just a kind of global contagion uh this kind of city building thing it's it's become you know it's become a habit of mind that you can um you know use cities to um you know that you can you know create these new uh environments new approaches to politics and so on and that the the new city has always had that um uh, had that responsibility from the from the intentional communities of defecting religious groups in the new world or to uh, uh, Spain's laws of the indies in the sixteenth century um, there's always that idea that you know kind of you can create a formation in real estate and that will you know create the 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 new world the new political disposition the new social um New social rules and so on. Um, I mean, the 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 neon looks like uh, like the toy of a of a of a very rich prince.
0: But then I also feel it's very interesting when people try to create those new things. It's always has some kind of frontier mentality, trying to push, trying to develop something something new. And there have been recently. Uh, very new kind of ideas, which also have been based on this free zone experiment. So one of them would be sea studying, where people try to build new cities on this on the open sea. And one institute that's trying to pursue this they recently signed an agreement with uh, French Polynesia in the Pacific, where they got their own special economic zone on the water to develop a floating city in the special economic zone, um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that has any chance of going anywhere, of being successful?
1: It's, it, again, it's sort of, it's quite common that there are these these kinds of ideas are, are always around. Um, you know, the, the, the giant uh, mile long cruise ship that you live in called the Freedom Ship, um, or the seasteading phenomenon or, or something, it's, um, again, it is about this kind of uh, cultural fallacy surrounding the idea of freedom, um, at least in, in my view. I um, mean, um, NEOM is interesting, uh, you know, for its attempts to uh, change cultural mores, it's also one, one thing I find interesting about it is that is the um, proposed bridge also to the African continent, um, you know across the across those two um, um, connecting uh, uh, back across. You know, I don't I don't know what that means. I mean there's the, it, it is an indication of different kinds of alignment, political alignment. So it's not just uh, and it is, and it is as, as, as we've been saying, something that's attempting to kind of um, change cultural mores or give another kind of power to the younger people in Saudi Arabia, kind of almost brand the, the desired global lifestyle of younger people in Saudi Arabia. Um, so that, that there's, there's much more going on there than in the kind of freedom ship, seasteading kind of um, projects.
0: There's another kind of project I would like to talk with you about. and I've been a bit involved myself. So there are a few NGOs pushing ideas of uh, refugee cities or one is, another one is called Refugee Nations, which look at the situation of, of displaced people in the world. They are, according to UN statistics, over 60 million now. And you have the big issue that conflicts last a lot longer than people originally think. So people are a long time in exile have children, you have second, third generation refugees and usually in the host countries that host them, they're not allowed to, to work sometimes going to school, all those very normal kind of things very limited, basically contained in refugee camps and they're usually very horrible, so many people rather live basically illegally just somewhere, and so the idea is that people say it's a state that's very unacceptable, which is a waste of human potential does not allow these people to develop their lives to create around those refugee camps or other places in the host nation small enclaves where refugees are allowed to work because typically there's a lot of opposition if the host government would grant the refugees to work that's why they don't do it and so there would be one way of using this special economic zone approach which basically says you have a geographically defined area in which a different set of rules applies and you have one new experimental policy and this experimental policy is giving refugees the right to work so you and the idea is you don't have this big backlash that you would have if you have it on a national scale but you still marginally increase the the options that refugees have maybe they can have a more long-term solution to find work there to maybe even build a new city to settle down what 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 are your, your thoughts on that
1: well I, I've been looking at over the years a number of sorts of projects which are which are almost saying you know well two can play at this game you know if we <laughs> if you're going to have these so-called free zones that are outside of law <clears throat> then then and if those if, if that the incredible you know legal and um, logistical ingenuity can be deployed for so-called free trade um where is the logistical and legal ingenuity for uh, being able to, you know, um, you know, if we could, if we can kind of move billions of products and millions of cheap laborers and tourists around the world with all this legal and logistical ingenuity, where's the, where's the ingenuity for just moving 65, you know, X million, or not 65, but X million people away from, you know, atrocities in Syria, or, you know, where's the legal logistical ingenuity for uh, relieving the situation of other people who, who need to move. It's, uh, it's remarkable um, that all there is is a kind of uh, nation state, the dumb on-off button for granting or denying citizenship, or an ngo that provides as its best idea um, storage in a refugee camp lasting on average 17 years so i mean i'm 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 all for uh uh, turning the tables on that um i mean so far i mean of course the minute you think about it you think yeah and what could possibly go wrong um that um you know it they, they could be incredible um uh dangers and abuses in a situation like that um there there is a history of people who are migrating making their own kinds of enclaves um you know somebody like uh Hakim Bey bay sort of romanticized the idea with you know the pirate enclaves of of north africa that there was uh, you know that that these were truly cosmopolitan cities that drew people from from everywhere and they kind of you know had their own rules and there was honor among thieves and so on it was a kind of free zone temporary autonomous zone um and uh you know i i guess i i would i would love to believe in that kind of cosmopolitanism um so far the the schemes for uh Making these kinds of cities have been, I guess, questionable. Um, um, and right now I'm working on something which is kind of different, you know, which is about a way for people who are migrating, um, who never wanted the citizenship from any one particular country, uh, can continue to move around the world, not just resettle in one free zone enclave but uh, string together uh, numbers of short-term visas um, for another kind of cosmopolitan mobility that's built on one-to-one relationships with people in different countries. Um, and so I'm, that's on my mind now as something that, again, not about freedom, but about obligation, about one-to-one connections, I'm wondering if, i'm I'm thinking about that as potentially a safer more secure option if the if the movements can be uh, if the strings of movements can be accredited um, to um, as an especially uh, prized credential education credential training credential etc so we're working on that right now for a project at um, for the Venice Biennale it's a Global platform called
0: Many. It sounds like a very interesting project. I hope to to hear more about it when uh, once you you presented it at the Biennale. Um, I find it interesting. We we have quite many historical precedents for this kind of open cities, like the pirate enclaves, or other examples to my mind are places like like Hong Kong, Shanghai, which were colonial outposts but were completely open and were mainly settled by by Chinese refugees in Shanghai also during the Second World War refugees coming from Europe who made use of the no-visa-required system that you could settle down there or the Tangier International Zone and quite often those places had a bad reputation because as everyone could go there, there was a lot of crime, a lot of mafia but in the other end, people had no other options to go so I personally think it's it's good because you have this other option. Nowadays we have a situation where the whole world is much more oligopized, monopolized by nation states and there is basically no territory at all that's not under the control, the border control of nation states and it seems to be very, really, really difficult to pull away a short layer and have some place where people can go without passports or who, who cannot go anywhere. But then on the other hand it seems much easier to pull a bit away of those layers of regulation of the nation-states when it comes to setting up free zones that are tax exempted or for free capital movement. But in the end it's like people that are very important and I think it would be much more meaningful if we could add this dimension of allowing people to go somewhere as well but somehow that seems to be much, yeah, a much bigger barrier in the current system of, of nation-states. Than for um, for capital, and it seems it's also a historical an- anomaly because usually we didn't we had a lot of more free cities or the Hanseatic League or bigger empires. So even nation states were much more less fair regarding migration than, than they used to be nowadays.
1: Yes, I suppose when, you know when one thinks about those, um, the idea of a, a autonomous city for refugees, you know it. Things would have to be uh, organized. I mean, it, it, it things would have to be organized in such a way. If it were anything like that, were to be successful, um, things would have to be organized in such a way that it's um, avoided the obvious specter of that just becoming another camp. You know, <laughs> another camp, but one without uh, a- any resources. Um, is it just another means of containment, or is it? Or does it truly have the the um, sort of um, privileges that we give to goods and tourists and free trade? Or is it just is it just another way of sort of corralling the other uh, in a, in a place with no with no resources? And
0: camps usually have a lot more oppression in the sense that people are not allowed to work, that people are denied a lot of the basic rights of, of human and economic agency. If you would have an autonomous area, you might not even need so many resources, because people could work, they could create themselves, they could build something, they can save, invest, they can build something by themselves. All those things that in the current system, they're basically stripped of, which seems to be very unnatural. And and yeah, leading to the situation that you have those over sixty million people who are yeah basically cannot legally do do anything at all.
1: Right. And I mean, in making this this many sites that we're talking about, we've looked at other um, diasporas um, and how they have how they have opera how they have worked and how and how people who are moving, you know, are. You know when they are allowed to bring their work and their ability to, you know, invest and create and so on. Um, you know, looking at uh, the the European diaspora during the Second World War to any number of places around the world, to to Shanghai, to uh, to Sao Paulo. Um, you know, there it's almost as if in uh, you know when when there is a way to enter into the economy, and again, sometimes it seems as if it's with a one-to-one connection, where there's a family member, there's um, um, somebody you know, there's a kind of community that's um, that's transferring to another uh, part of the world that shares the same uh, culture, you know, religion, skill, something that there's an enormous chance for the success with that, um, uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I uh, it's, it's exactly that idea of the sideline talents, the inability to work, the inability to exchange, which, which we're looking at with this many sites that um, uh, we're trying to do a kind of matchmaking between those sideline talents and the enormous needs of. Of many other people in the world, so it's a kind of need-to-need um, uh, matchmaking. No, no hosts, no haves and have-nots. Um, so I'm, al- so I'm also interested in that. It's, as, as incredibly information-rich um, in, in its exchanges. Uh, uh, it, it just dispositionally, it seems like it might be more information-rich than, than, than another enclave. If you follow me.
0: I think now we touched on many topics, maybe as a last question to finish off uh what do you think is the future of resource? Where do you see it going
1: well i um I'll tell you where I'm where I don't know where it's going. um I can observe two things: one, it's mutated wildly over the last thirty or forty years um so the fact that it is so elastic, that it's gone from kind of a chain link fence warehousing compound to a mega city in that period of time. Um, I keep hoping that the next kind of fiction about what it will be is powerful. Um, I keep hoping that it's the idea that the zone's kind of aspiration to be a city might be the germ of its own reversal, that that to to really be a city is to locate in the existing city you know to to take advantage of that kind of uh of that kind of cosmopolitan uh mobility um and that's the that's the rumor that i (laughs) that i would like to spread
0: thank you very much for your time for the interesting discussion